0: sermon text today is Psalm 51 verses 4 through 6, Psalm 51 verses 4 through 6, verse 4 says against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you grieved and broken by conviction of our sin. And Lord, we, we feel the weight of that conviction. And Lord, against you we have sinned. And every sin is a rejection of you, is God. And, and Lord, just forgive us for our wayward hearts and for turning to false loves and for seeking life apart from you or forgive us for violating your commands and for our pride and self-righteousness but through the blood of Christ shed for us we ask for forgiveness and we thank you that because of Christ you look at us and see his blood covering our sin Lord, you see his righteousness you see his holy life and credit it to us because of Jesus we are united to his spirit And he's at work in us. Lord, help us to love you with all of our hearts. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Lord, conform us to your will and help us to image Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, Roger, for reading our text for us this morning. It's interesting I came in this morning and someone asked me, So are you preaching on the sanctity of human life today? Because I read over your text and I was kind of wondering what that was going to be about. Yes, we are. And uh, you'll see as we get get into it, as we focus specifically on verse 5, we're going to deal with all three of the verses that Roger read, but specifically verse 5 where it talks about being brought forth or birthed in iniquity. Not only that, in sin did my mother conceive me. We'll be focusing on that. And so hopefully this will be an encouragement to us, a challenge to us today, as we see uh, personhood in the womb, um, as we see this moral agency that uh, David affirms begins from conception. And Really, that's the title of the sermon here. It's kind of a long title, very Puritanesque. So personhood in the womb, a moral agent from conception. And uh, so we're going to unpack that here in just a minute. But before we do so, I had a couple of introductory things. Um, so the, the first one is uh, our first Sunday of the year, we, we had our uh, Covenant Sunday. And I, I preached on uh, the communion of the saints and how that's based upon our union in Christ. And Christ is truly what unites us. And here we find our unity, and Christ is greater than all the other things that divide us. And and, and the things that I pushed us towards were a lot of things that this world tries to present to us that divide us, that pull us apart. But someone might wonder, as we come to a, uh, a service like today, the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, like is this one of those things that unites us in Christ, or could we be united in Christ and divided on this Topic. And I would argue that while I do not believe that, um, that this is a necessary component of faith in order to become a Christian, it is definitely clearly a truth that Christ presents in his word that every Christian should hold to. That that there is orthodoxy at stake with this question. And why is it so significant? Well, last year, we looked at the very first use of the word covenant in the Bible. We looked at the Noahic covenant. And in the Noahic covenant, we saw God affirming. The very first kind of use of the word that brings us to this idea of the covenant of grace, that God has been gracious to his people, he he affirms the sanctity of human life the preciousness of it, the way that we should value it. And in, in, in so doing, um, the church has stood on this truth. So I wrote this introduction for last year's Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I've, I've altered it just a little bit, but I want to read it again. Today we are affirming the sanctity of human life. And in a sense, we do so today because of a proclamation made by President Ronald Reagan in 1984 which designated January 22nd as the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And yet, in another sense, biblical Christianity has always affirmed the sanctity of human life. A national day has never been a necessity for God's people to proclaim God's truth. Christianity celebrates the fact that this nation has a day like this. And at least in affirming this day, our nation joins with the church to affirm God's absolute truth that the church has faithfully preached since its inception and was affirmed by God's people throughout the history of the world. So in a sense, the church and our church is not joining with the nation to affirm this day, but rather the nation has joined with the church. And what does the church affirm? Well, in the Didache from the second century, it affirmed, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. All the way back from the second century, in the third council of Constantinople in 8680 or 681, from 680 to 681, in canon number 41, it said those who give drugs for procuring abortions and those who receive poisons to kill the fetus are subject to the penalty of murder, References, referencing uh, canon 21 um, in AD 314 and canon number 2 of St. Basil's in 370, which says she who purposely destroys the fetus shall suffer the punishment of murder and we pay no attention to the subtle distinction as to whether the fetus was formed or unformed. We go on further in church history, Alvin Schmidt on his, in his online post points us to the 12th century AD where two scholars, Evo Cartes and Gartian, noted that from the 4th century to their day in the 12th century, over 4,000 canons had been issued affirming the sanctity of life. In the 16th century, Martin Luther asserted that those who pay no attention to pregnant women and do not spare the tender fetus are murderers and persidious, or murderers of parents. John Calvin said, The unborn child, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being and should not be robbed of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. We see here that the church... Throughout its history, has affirmed the sanctity of human life, because the Bible, the, the biblical truth, remains biblical truth. And this is why I would say that while this is not something that is a necessary affirmation to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it is definitely a necessary affirmation to remain orthodox, to believe what the Bible actually teaches so that we can say historically the church has not just stood against abortion, euthanasia, or anything that demeans human life, but has also called Christians to fulfill their responsibilities to God and to one another to love and care for their created brothers and sisters made in the image of God, doing what they can to ensure that harm does not come to them. There does seem to be a very natural tendency in some of humanity to do this very thing. You can think of first responders or people who have dedicated their lives to service, uh, to saving people's lives and caring for them. Nevertheless, Christians should all be known by a love that gives of oneself, even sacrifices oneself to protect others. In fact, this is kind of an overflow, as people look at the Ten Commandments and see, "Thou shalt not murder." It's not just—it's not just that we we. We just make sure we don't kill anybody, but that we seek to prevent such things from occurring, that we seek to prevent harm that could lead to death from occurring. I mean, this is the call to the Christian. This is what orthodox Christianity is. This is what unites us. As we have been saved in Christ, now we seek to affirm his truth and live it out in our everyday lives. Would you join me as we pray today before we dig into our text? Father God, we are saddened by the fact that we have to affirm such a day as this, as though it is not affirmed every other day, saddened by the fact that in certain years, the church stands together with our government to affirm the sanctity of every human life, to affirm, even as our, our government is meant to protect every American life. And yet, in many other years, the church stands opposed to the government, where it does not affirm life from conception. It doesn't affirm your truth. And while that is saddening, it should not be surprising, for we live in a fallen and broken world. And of all those who sorrow over it, you sorrow most. We cannot even comprehend the depths of sorrow. You feel over the fallenness of your creation. And the result, the killing of innocent babies among thousands of other sins. This is what your creation has fallen to. This is what it looks like to turn away from the almighty, all-knowing, all-loving God. And while we might look and disdain at those who would participate in such things or promote such things, yet we we, we know that we are sinners too that have only been saved by your grace. And so we do not we do not pray for your wrath but your mercy. We pray that hearts would be changed. That as their hearts would open up to the reality of this fetus in a womb being a baby, a human being who has yet to enjoy the life that is ahead of them. They would respond in defense of such frail and innocent yet-to-live human beings. Lord, as we as we pray for our new president, Lord, let him see the truth that exists in this area. Our desire is that he would he would be a successful president and 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 help America to 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 continue to uh grow and financially and, and and uh many other ways, but as we look at this area, Lord, we pray that you would turn his heart. Turn the heart of those who are in his cabinet, those who are in his confidant, those his advisors turn their hearts to see and defend these little Americans. We know the heart of the king is in your hands. And so we rest in you. We trust in you. Lord, today we ask as we look at this text now that you that we may see this truth reaffirmed in our minds. Life begins at conception. And therefore it is worthy of dignity, protection. It's worthy of our efforts to seek to stop the murder of these children. Even as we look at this text, may we see that just like us. These are people in desperate need of the gospel. For every human being that has been conceived by man, has been desperate need of the gospel. So maybe not just save their physical lives, but then may we preach faithfully the gospel to each and every human brain being that breathes around us so that they might know the truth and that in hearing they might believe and that believing they might give glory to you who has saved them from their sins, from death and from eternal damnation. May our voices not just Solely resound here in this building, but may your church across Joliet, across Illinois, across our nation, across the world, resound with your truth today. That you are God and there is no other. That you are sovereign. We have no other authority compared to you, that you are Savior. We have no other hope but in you, in this life, and in the next. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A main point this morning is this. Each person is worthy of dignity as a moral agent before God from conception and is in desperate need of the gospel. Each person is worthy of dignity as a moral agent before God from conception and is in desperate need of the gospel. I have three points here, and each one corresponds to one of our verses in our text today. And so our first point today as we unpack this main point, that each person is worthy as a moral agent, is to help us understand morality. What is morality based upon these verses? There's some truth about morality that we can learn. And first of all, morality is not a human construct. It's not a social construct. We have not evolved this so that we might live within uh, conformity with one another, so that we might, you know, as a, as a, as a uh, humankind, we might survive majority might survive some people view it that way that morality is just just a construct that we've created so that the majority can survive otherwise there'd be anarchy and chaos and we'd likely die out as a race but when we come to God's word we see that morality is not a human construct it never has been but is rooted in God and his laws and so we look at verse 4 now before we look at before, let me just give you some context. So David is king of Israel. It took him a while to become king. he was he was he was pronounced king by uh, Samuel. His oil was poured over his head. He's pronounced king. And yet he takes a while to become king because Israel already had a king, Saul. And Saul kind of found out about it and decided, He'll just get rid of David. So he tried to kill David. God protected David for quite a while as David ran around in the wilderness hiding away from Saul. Eventually, um, Saul dies in battle and David is pronounced king of Israel. And as king, he, he leads Israel to this glorious, this glorious future, and he's described as a man after God's own heart, and he he leads them towards God. And in many in many ways, all the other kings are compared with David and who he is in his heart for God. And yet, what do we find? That David, though loving God greatly in his heart, though a very righteous man in many ways, is all still a man, right? A sinful human being. And he falls, and he commits Adultery with Bathsheba, and in turn, he has Uriah, her husband, killed because he finds out that she's pregnant. And in turn, he is deserving of death, and yet God, in his grace, forgives him, not without consequence. He forgives him, and then David writes this psalm of confession proclaiming the mercy God has shown to him. And in the psalm, he writes in verse four, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Now, in one sense... David sinned against a lot more people than just God. I mean, David sinned against Bathsheba and David sinned against Uriah. But not only that, David sinned against a whole nation as his king, as the king. He should not have been involved in this and he brought about great sorrow because of it. And yet, in another sense, because of who God is, God is the creator this entire world, the entire universe, the creator of all of us. He's one we all answer to. In another sense, he will answer to no one like he answers to God. And truly, in the end, all the things that he did that were wrong were wrong because God says they're wrong. Because God is the root of all morality. He is the one who sets the rules and sets the laws. And that's why he says here, not only just does he say, against you and you only I have sinned, but what? I have done what is evil in your sight. What is evil? It's evil that's done in God's sight according to what God describes as evil. That's why he goes on to say, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. It's his ways, it's his laws, it's his decrees, it's what he says that is right and that is wrong. And David understands this. And we we're meant to understand this as well. We were not created to create our own morality, to pursue our own way. And yet, truly, humanity has pursued its own morality and pursued its own way. Let me go all the way back to Genesis Genesis 3, what do we see with Adam and Eve? And we, you know, God gives them the command, do not eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat all the other trees. It's not that one. And we know the serpent comes and he seeks to deceive Eve, but then we read this. Notice her choice, her way. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Was she deceived? Yes. But she also chose her own way. Does it look good? In turn, what do we read of Adam? Adam chose his own way too. She gave him some. Yeah, I know this is forbidden, but here, you should try it. What does he do? Sure thing. Sounds good to me. They go their own way. We see this in the days of the judges. You read the very last verse in Judges 21-25, which is setting up the kingship ultimately of David. Let's say in those days there were no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Their own morality. Whatever seemed best to them. This seems right, I'm going to do it. It's what we are warned of in Proverbs. And Proverbs doesn't warn us of it just once, but specifically with these same words twice, but then referencing it in other ways in other parts of Proverbs. So at least four or five times in Proverbs, it warns of of this very truth, that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Its end is the way of destruction. Truly humanity seeks to pursue its own morality. And in fact, to some degree, our sinful rebellion against God is this desire to pursue our own morality, our own way. Morality is not a human construct. God has not given us the right to develop our own morality, but rather calls us to pursue his. Morality is rooted in God and his laws. That's why when Peter writes, he says, But as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's what the psalmist Seeks to convey throughout the text of Psalm 119 as he's conveying his his love and desire for God's truth. In verse seven, he says, "I will praise you with an upright heart." But how, when I learn your righteous rules? Or in verse eleven, I have stored up your word in my heart, so that I might not sin against you. I mean, where where does this uprightness come from? Where does this guard from sin come from? It comes from God and His law. Or in verse 21, rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Or Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endure forever. God is the source of morality, God is the determiner of good and evil. And any moral agent answers ultimately to God for everything that they do. In fact, moral agents are moral agents because God made them so. Since morality is rooted in God. I mean, God has created us to be these moral agents. In turn, we see that in the Garden of Eden. God created them, and then what does he do? He says, here's all the trees you can eat from. Don't eat from this one. He allows them the opportunity to display their moral agency and the choice that they ultimately make. The second point here today is this about morality. Morality is not dependent on ability, but is an innate part of human nature. Morality is not dependent on ability, but an innate part of human nature. And that's what we get from verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, my sin, or, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, no, no one really takes this verse to indicate in any way that somehow uh, David's mother was acting in sin in some way when she conceived uh, David. Rather, the understanding is this, very thing that there was a sinful nature in David at his very conception. So, the question I'm asking here about this not dependent on ability is do I have to sin or resist sin to be a moral agent? David, as inspired by God to write this psalm, says no. No, because what moral dilemma does a baby face in the womb? What sinful choice is it making while it's feeding off its mother? None. Our morality is, defi- is definitely shown by our ability to choose between good and evil. So we definitely see that Adam and Eve have morality, in the Garden of Eden when they make their choice, but is that, is that the reason why they have it? Or are our actions merely demonstrating that we are moral beings? They don't make us moral beings. They just demonstrate that we are moral beings. And if that's the case, where does our morality comes from? Our morality comes from God creating us as moral beings. God being the root of morality he creates humanity, and he creates us as moral beings. And therefore, in our actions, we do things that are morally right or morally wrong. We're moral agents because God created us to be. It's an innate part of our human nature. In fact, we can go even further and say that impersonal beings, just like impersonal objects, objects cannot be moral agents. Only personal beings have the capacity to function as moral agents, okay? If you have two very young boys in your house, it's very likely that a toy is going to be used as a weapon, okay? Right, okay? But is that toy a moral agent? I mean, the fact that that toy is being hurled across the room and it hits the other kid in the head, Right? Is all of a sudden that is is that toy evil? We must rid our house of that toy. How evil is it? No, no. The toy is only doing what the moral agent caused it to do. The moral agent is the one who, desiring to hit his kid, and he had a great he has a great throw. Maybe he'll be a baseball player. I don't know. Desiring to hit his brother, hurls it across the room. Right? It's not the toy person it's the personal being that is the moral agent randy alcorn writes this as a member of the human race that has rejected god each person sinned in adam and is therefore a sinner from the very beginning romans 5 david says Surely I was sinful at birth. And he goes back even further, back before birth to the actual beginning of his life, saying that he was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Our verse right here, 51.5. Each person has a sinful nature from the point of conception. And who but an actual person can have a sinful nature? Rocks and trees and animals and human organs do not have moral natures, good or bad. Morality is can be ascribed only to a person. And that there is a sin nature at the point of conception demonstrates that there is a person present who is capable of having such a nature. It's an innate part of our humanity. And therefore, from conception, what is David saying? I was a moral agent. I was a person. I was a human being. From the very time I was conceived, because I was conceived in sin as a moral agent. You see, God created humanity as moral agents, personal beings with a human nature. And then what we see from the fall, the fall produced fallen moral agents. Personal beings with a sinful human nature, a fallen human nature. And that's what David is just affirming here. I was created with a human nature, but I exist after the fall. And as a descendant of Adam, I begin life with a sinful nature, a human nature, as a personal being. So from conception, a moral agent, a human being, sinful but still human, coming into being. This being is a person deserving of worthy of worth, sorry, of worth and dignity. Person created by God in God's image, though fallen, is still his creation, deserving of worth and dignity. But because it's fallen, it leads us to this third point. Morality is not the answer to our need, but it's pointing us to our need for the gospel. Morality is not the answer to our need, but is pointing us to our need for the gospel. And we see that in verse 6, at least the beginnings of it. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, there's some debate over the meaning of this verse, but I think what is being said here is that God desires inward perfection, not just outward conformity. Now, does that mean he doesn't want outward conformity? No. He. He wants us to live out our obedience. But it has to start inside us. It has to start inside us. As one commentator writes, God requires not merely such purity as might be attained by the use of legal and ritual methods. So this outward, but true inward purity of thought and heart, which are a very different matter. So from conception, a person exists, but it's a fallen person in need of salvation. And that salvation we know from the rest of Scripture. The salvation that would change us internally and then overflow out in our actions is not something that is found in us. Our morality is so fallen that we are unable to save ourselves from our sin. We are unable to change our sinful heart. David understands what God delights in is truth that exists in the innermost part of us. And therefore, that innermost part needs to be taught by God. That wisdom needs to come from outside of us into us. David understands this One, because God reveals it to him, but two, because he's part of God's covenant people. He's had to turn away from his own ways and trust in God for his salvation. And that's why when we go down just a little bit in this text, in verse 12, what does he say? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The salvation that you give to your people. The salvation that you... get, Why? Because God must give us grace to save us. Grace so that we might hear. Grace so that we might trust in Him. Trust in the gospel, the good news that He has given us. And as a believer, David knows salvation is only from God. And his desire is that, that his heart would continually be changed. What does he say? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew in a right spirit within me. Why? Because here's this, here's this covenant... Person of God, related to God through the covenant, trusting in God's promises, looking forward to the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, having trusted in him now, choosing to live his own way in sin. What does he need? He needs forgiveness. He needs mercy from God. He needs cleansing. He needs res- restoration to not, not a new salvation, but what the joy of the salvation that he already has. But in turn, in order to be in a place where where as a a believer you can confess your sins and God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, what you have to be trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ to have saved you from those sins. For only he can change the heart. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that it is the word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, to the joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. As we're told in the Old Testament, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? But God's word can penetrate to the depths of it. it, can cut down to the deepest parts of our soul and reveal to us who we truly are. Maybe he doesn't need to dig that deep for many of us. We know we're sinners that are in desperate need of grace. But if you struggle with self-righteousness, he continues to cut away. The idea here is, while well, it's, well, it's translated as two-edged sword, ideas of a scalpel that can cut accurately, and deeply to get to the very depths of where you are. And it's Ezekiel who reminds us in, 30, in, in chapter 36 of the book, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Morality is not the answer to our need. I can do better next time. I'll just try harder. You know what? Okay, so God created us as moral agents. We've fallen. Even from my very conception, I'm a fallen moral agent. I have the sinful human nature, but you know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna study up God's laws and I'm gonna just try to live them out, all of them. You can try that if you want. I'll tell you right now, you break even one and you're guilty of breaking them all is what God says. Like falling short of the glory of God that would save us means not being perfect in one little part. And God knows we cannot be perfect. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Morality is not the answer to our need. It is who we are. We're moral beings. We have the ability to choose between right and wrong. And even even in our fallen nature, we don't always choose the most wrong we could possibly choose. But in our fallen nature, we cannot in any way please God apart from being perfect. And God's promises in the gospel is that Jesus has come to take our sin upon himself, to take our heart of stone, and in turn, give us his righteousness. Give us the heart of flesh that we need. And that if we put our trust in him, we can be saved. Number four, connecting to everyday life. Two questions I have to leave with you. First of all, do you see your need for the gospel? Do you see your need for the gospel? Well, first of all, to the unbeliever, do you see your need? You are born in sin. And in turn... I'm sure you have lived that sin out, that sinful nature out. You have actively sinned in word or deed, both in thought, in feelings. And all that is meant to demonstrate to us our need for the gospel. And if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Turn and trust in him. As you hear the gospel being presented to you today, turn and trust in him. Do not wait. For the believer, do you see your need for the gospel? Because apart from it, you'd still have a heart of stone. The only reason a heart of flesh beats within you that desires to live for God as he says, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my stature and carefully obey my rules. The only reason is because God is gracious. To give you the gospel, to allow you to hear it and put your faith in it. And in turn, and in turn, we should respond, we should respond like David, understanding the depths of our sinfulness and yet the glorious grace of our God. And while we're not going to unpack the rest of Psalm 51, Psalm 51's desire is to live out what Ezekiel 36, 27 says that I would walk in in, in God's statutes and carefully obey His rules. Why? Not to earn our relationship with God, but because of what God has done with us in the gospel. Do you see your need for the gospel? The gospel preaches to you to not go your own way. Even as Christians, we're still prone to go our own way. The gospel preaches to us. Your own way leads to death. God's way through Jesus Christ. It's the only way that leads to life, life now and life in eternity. The second question here has to do with the sanctity of human life. As As we see that life begins at conception, because we see here a moral agent, as David describes himself, a personhood that exists, we have to ask ourselves, then how will you defend the worth and dignity of persons in the womb? In light of the truth that personhood begins at conception, that these babies in the womb that are being killed through abortion are persons being murdered. How will we choose to defend their worth and dignity? There are many different ways that you could get involved. We have the Pregnancy Resource Center Center that we have uh, connections with, and we encourage uh, involvement there, and there's different ways you can evolve, whether you're supporting it financially. Um, Coming up, I don't know how they're going to do it, if they're going to have an actual walk this year or not, but the opportunity to give towards that, the opportunity to give towards their banquet, uh, to help with their ministry, the opportunity to to volunteer, their ability to come alongside women, but you don't even have to go through uh, the pregnancy Resource Center. Maybe God's put you in a place uh, where you have contact with a young woman who's pregnant. That you'll be able to be in a conversation and see what's going on in their life. And um, maybe this is something they're struggling with. Um, and you'll be able to help and encourage them, strengthen them. Maybe it's the opportunity to take advantage of social media or whatever to respectfully and kindly affirm these truths. Um, Maybe it's wearing some type of clothing that causes conversations to occur um, uh, that would allow you to uh, take advantage and present not just God's view on life and the sanctity of human life, but then in turn, why a God who holds life so sacred would then send his son to give his life as a ransom for many. You'll share the gospel with them. There's a lot of different uh, opportunities uh, to take advantage of this. Maybe it's uh, becoming more involved in, in local government or state government and helping encouraging different laws and things that protect life to be passed. Whatever God is laying upon your heart, I would encourage you. I would encourage you to in some way, shape, or form, seek to answer this question. How will you defend the worth and dignity of persons in the womb? Maybe you can add in 2021. Give yourself a little time frame. How, how this year will I defend the worth and dignity of persons in the womb? Because this is part of the truth that we as God's church affirm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to look at this text today. In many ways, it's convicting. It's convicting in the area of our sinfulness and our need to turn from our sins and follow after you. It's convicting in the area of self-righteousness. It's easy to think of ourselves better than we are. good to be reminded how desperately we are in need of your grace. It's also convicting to consider how you view humanity, this race that you created, how you view us as persons even from conception and in the womb. And because of that and living in a nation where, where the killing of those persons is legal, or may that rest heavy on our hearts. May our actions fit with what we say we believe. Be willing to do something. Something fitting of the gospel and of your truth something that demonstrates love because we are meant to be known by our love, and yet clearly defending and affirming the life of these persons. Or may we not be content to be convicted in any of these areas and go home unchanged. May we not be convicted in any of these areas and then turn off the monitor at the end of the service and be unchanged. Lord, I pray that you give us unrest until we seek to live out these convictions so that we find our rest in you, and in living for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.